Let us pray. Father, we thank You for giving Your Son to us to be our ransom, to be a ransom for many, to free us, to deliver us, to rescue us from our enemies of sin and Satan and death. And through hearing this Word, this Gospel proclaimed today, may our faith be strengthened, may our hearts rejoice, and may we share this message, the good news of Christ with others. In His name we pray. Amen. We've been in Mark's Gospel off and on for a long time now. And so I think you've probably got a pretty good feel for what Mark's Gospel is is what it's all about. Mark's Gospel is the story of God coming in the flesh to redeem His people and crush His enemies and inaugurate His kingdom. The story of Mark's Gospel is the story of the God-man. And it's a story of action and power. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus reveals Himself as the God-man by His deeds just as much as by His words. But what is most surprising about this story, about this story about the God-man, is this, really. It's when God shows up in the flesh. When God comes among us with a body. When God comes in human form to redeem His people and destroy His enemies and establish His kingdom. How does He do so? He does so through suffering and dying. He comes to conquer. And He comes to save. But He does so through dying. His power is revealed in weakness. This is surprising because as you're going through the Gospel, Jesus is continually showing His power and then you come to the end of it and you think, oh, this will be the grand culmination displaying His power. And what do we find? We find Him hanging on a tree. The disciples couldn't comprehend this was going to happen. And so even though Jesus talked about it and talked about it plainly, You know, he spoke in parables to the crowds, these cryptic, mysterious uh, stories he would tell. But when he spoke to his disciples about the upcoming cross, he spoke in plain, literal language, and yet still the disciples didn't get it. They could not comprehend that Jesus would suffer. And it's not just that the idea of a suffering Messiah was foreign to them, though certainly... It was. They would have said a Messiah who suffers must not have really been the Messiah. A suffering Messiah is a failed Messiah. It means we must have bet on the wrong course. That wasn't the Messiah. We'll have to look for another. Certainly the concept of a suffering Messiah was foreign to them, but it's more than that. They couldn't comprehend Jesus' suffering because they had seen Jesus in action. They had seen His miracles. They had seen His great acts of power and authority. Here was a man with divine power. A man who fed the multitudes with meager provisions. A man who drove out demons merely by speaking a word. A man who raised the dead. The disciples think, you know, this is a man who can do anything. He has got God's power. And surely if you can do anything, one thing you are certainly going to do is protect yourself from suffering. If you can do anything, if you've got all power, certainly one thing you're going to do. You're not going to serve. You're going to make your enemies serve you. You're going to protect yourself from suffering. You're not going to have to serve. Others are going to serve you. Who wouldn't do that? Given incredible power, who would not do that? 
Who would not use their power to crush and subdue and control? And certainly in one sense, the disciples were right. Jesus did have power to do this. Certainly when Jesus got to Jerusalem, He could have inflicted suffering on His enemies. He could have taken the city by force. He could have done exactly what the disciples were hoping and expecting He would do. He could have crushed His enemies. The disciples, of course, were thinking of the enemies as the Romans. And so certainly Jesus could have taken out the Romans. He could have summoned legions of angels to fight for Him as He acknowledged before Pilate. In fact, He could have called on several thousand Jewish zealots who were in town for the feast and who probably had swords tucked away under their cloaks. I don't know what the concealed carry laws were back then, but I have no doubt that there were many Jewish zealots in the city who were ready with swords under their cloaks to go on command and go fight the Romans, just awaiting the word. But when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, that is precisely not what He does. That is not how He will rescue His people and win the victory and establish the kingdom. In fact, it's the exact opposite of what He will do. He will win the victory and establish His kingdom and rescue His people, not by inflicting inflicting suffering, not by causing others to bleed and die, but by suffering and bleeding and dying Himself. Do you get this? Do you see this? Do you see how profound this is? Jesus is God in the flesh. God marching on Jerusalem. And what is He going to do when He gets there? God is going to get bloody for His people. He's going to shed His blood and die on a tree. But Jesus wants His disciples to see and He wants us to see that when God gets bloodied, it's really glorious. It's gory, but it's glorious. The bloodied and battered God, the crucified God, the cursed God is the God who serves His people and rescues His people and brings in His kingdom. Now that kingdom doesn't have the exact shape the disciples were expecting. But the way of that kingdom is indeed glorious. I think there's a phrase that Paul uses in Acts chapter 20 when Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders that really gets at what Jesus is talking about here in Mark chapter 10. Paul in Acts 20 says the church was purchased with the blood of God. He speaks of the church as a people purchased with the blood of God. And that's really what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus in Martin is saying He's going to go and purchase His people. He's going to redeem His people with His own blood. See, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem as God in human flesh, God in human form, and He is going to believe in order to redeem His people. Jesus says here in Mark 10.45, He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now verse 45 is really the centerpiece of this passage. In fact, I think it's really the most crucial statement about the cross in the whole of the Gospel. It's really the key verse. Jesus here says He will be a ransom. I think that's really the key word in the key verse. And so it's important for us to understand when Jesus says He will be a ransom and give His life as a ransom for many, it's important for us to understand what that means. What is a ransom? What is Jesus talking about? When we hear that word ransom, what do we think of? We think of kidnappers scrawling out notes, (laughs) handing them over, saying they want millions of dollars. You know, I'll only give you back these people I've kidnapped if you pay me a certain amount of money or something like that. That's what we think of as a ransom. 
All right, that's not the idea here. Uh, we shouldn't get the, the our, our our concept, our understanding of ransom from the culture around us. What we really need to do, as with everything else, Jesus says and does, we've really got to go back to the Old Testament. Because the truth is, there is a whole ransoming system, a whole ransoming theology in the Old Covenant Scriptures, in the Old Testament. It primarily comes from the Exodus and from the Law. The Exodus led by Moses and the Law God delivered to His people through Moses. We find a whole system of ransoming there. In the Law, and this is simplifying, but I think it will do enough to, to, to make clear the point. In the law, the Old Covenant law, if a piece of family property was lost, or if a family member had to go into debt and therefore became a slave, that piece of property or that person could be ransomed. And it would be the job specifically of the kinsman redeemer, so a kinsman, another family member, who would come along and redeem or ransom that piece of property or that person who had been enslaved. And typically what he would do is he would pay silver or gold as ransom money. And in paying this silver or gold, the kinsman redeemer would restore the lost inheritance or free the enslaved. That would be the job of the kinsman redeemer. We could even say kinsman ransomer. That's what he would do. He would pay ransom money to restore the lost property or restore the enslaved person. Now, the New Testament picks up on this aspect of the ransom theme in places like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, where the Apostle Peter says, we were not redeemed or ransomed with silver or gold, but with the priceless blood of Christ. Peter's point is, we forfeited our inheritance. We forfeited our share in God's creation. When Adam sinned, he squandered the dominion he had over the creation. And so we lost our inheritance in God's world. And not only that, but our sins have indebted us and enslaved us. And so we've lost our inheritance and we've been enslaved. Peter is saying the blood of Christ has purchased us to set us free. He's reclaimed our inheritance and He's paid off our debts. And so we can go free. Our inheritance has been restored and we are set free. We are no longer slaves. That's part of it. But ransom is also an exodus term. And here it has to do, again, with setting people free, but not so much by paying a price as by destroying their enemies. This aspect of the ransom law or the ransom system in the Old Testament you see come into play when someone is being unjustly oppressed, when someone has been wrongly enslaved. And in those situations, the kinsman redeemer would become a blood avenger and would destroy the oppressor. This is exactly what happened in the Exodus when God redeemed or ransomed His people. God didn't pay Pharaoh a price to set the Israelites free. God redeemed or ransomed the Israelites by raiding Pharaoh's house and then by destroying Pharaoh himself. And so the ransoming here is not an act of payment. It is an act of power. Now I think both of those dimensions are in view when Jesus calls Himself a ransom in verse 45. Insofar as sin creates a debt we cannot pay, Jesus paid that debt with the price of His blood to release us from all obligation. Insofar as sin has enslaved us, Jesus has destroyed sin's power over us to set us free. 
very interesting when you go to the Old Testament and you look at this, you know, there's this whole ransoming system and, and it's, it's, it's the kinsman redeemer who is to do the ransoming. But very often in the Old Testament Scriptures, you find it's actually only God who can do the ransoming. Only God can do the redeeming. And so, for example, in Hosea chapter 13, the prophet says, actually the Lord speaks through the prophet, He says, I will ransom My people from death. So here, whatever needs to be done, whatever price has to be paid, or whatever oppressor has to be destroyed in order to rescue God's people from death, to ransom them, God Himself will pay that price. He will do the ransoming. Psalm 49 says this, in verses 6-8, to it says, Even the wealthy man who boasts in his riches cannot ransom his brother, for it is costly to ransom a soul. In other words, an acknowledgement that silver or gold can't really ransom somebody's life. Somebody's life is much more valuable than silver or gold. But then a few verses later in Psalm 49, it says this, But God will ransom my soul from the grave. Only God can ransom those who are enslaved by death, who are in bondage to death, who are indebted to death. In Psalm 69, verse 18, the psalmist cries out to the Lord, draw near to my soul and ransom me, deliver me because of my enemies. The psalmist is asking the Lord to be his ransomer, to redeem him. Uh, Psalm 111, verse 9 says, the Lord has ransomed his people and established his covenant forever. So, you know, it's very interesting. Some of those Old Testament passages about ransoming, it's got to be a kinsman who, who does it. It's got to be a close family member who ransoms you or redeems you. Other passages speak about the Lord doing this work of ransoming. And we might say, well, which is it? Is it a close family member or is it the Lord who will carry out this ransom? And of course, in Jesus, we find it's both. The whole point of the incarnation is that the Lord has become our kinsman. He has come to do what only God can do as our Redeemer. And He's come to do what only a kinsman, only a close family member can do. He is our kinsman Redeemer. This is what Jesus has come to do as the God-man. To ransom us from our enemies and from the grave. He has come to be our kinsman Redeemer. And indeed, this is what He wants His disciples to understand. It's very interesting. In the prophet Isaiah, you have a lot about this. In Isaiah 35 and 43 and 51, the Lord says He has ransomed His people and brought them to Zion. It's really all about the new exodus. Remember, we've talked about Isaiah's promise of a new exodus and how that plays a, a key role in Mark's Gospel. Well, there's going to be a new exodus. There's got to be a ransom. Just as, as, as the Lord ransomed His people or redeemed His people by destroying Pharaoh. And just as there was a, a victory march to Zion after the Exodus, so there's got to be another victory march. And Isaiah describes all of that. How the Lord will pay the ransom for His people so they can experience a new Exodus and be set free forever. We can't pay the price of our redemption. We can't defeat our oppressors. The Lord must do it for us. And so Jesus says, this is why I have come. It's in order to give my life as a ransom for my people. To pay their debts and defeat their enemies. So they can enjoy this new exodus. So they can have victory. Jesus is our ransom. Jesus offering His life on the cross was really the culmination of a life of service. He lived His whole life as a servant. Jesus is the King who serves. He is the God who serves. Jesus is the God-man. But He didn't use His power for His own advantage. 
He used His power to serve. He came among us as a servant. He took the form of a servant, the posture of a servant. He served His people before His death. That's very clear in His miracles and His teaching. He served us in His death when He laid down His life as a ransom payment. And you know what? He continues to serve us today. Jesus is among us right now as one who serves. Indeed, that's what this Lord's Day gathering really is all about. That's why we call this not just a worship service, but we call it the divine service or the Lord's service. That's the traditional name for the gathering of God's people because we come not just to serve the Lord, we come to be served by the Lord. This is the Lord's service to us. How is the Lord Jesus Christ among you as a servant today? How is He serving you right now? He has served you by declaring your sins forgiven. He's serving you through speaking His Word and His truth to you as His Word is read and proclaimed. It's Christ who's speaking His truth to you. He's going to serve us in a few moments at His table. On Sundays, the Lord Jesus Christ is our host and our chef and our waiter and our food. And we come here first and foremost to receive His service. The meal we partake of, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is the fruit of His ransom payment. We eat His body which was broken for us. We drink His blood which was shed for us. And as we eat and drink, we commune with the glorified God-man who was crucified for us. And we receive all the benefits He won for us. He is our ransom. He has set us free from our enemies and our oppressors. He has restored our inheritance. Now it's interesting, there are other ways that Jesus gets at this. Other ways Jesus describes the work He came to do in this passage, and they're important as well. I think seeing Jesus as our ransom, that's what's central and kind of sheds light on everything else. But there are other ways Jesus speaks about this. What prompts this whole discussion? James and John, two of the twelve, come to Jesus. And they come to Jesus asking for positions of glory. They say, we want to have positions of glory when you enter into your kingdom. They're really glory hogs. Uh, They want glory for themselves. And really, in a way, you could say here, they are recapitulating the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. What did Adam and Eve do in the garden? They seized the forbidden fruit. What was that forbidden fruit? It was fruit from a kingly tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All throughout the Old Testament, the knowledge of good and evil has to do not just with knowing right from wrong in a basic kind of way. It has to do with kingly rule. Kings know and judge good from evil. That forbidden tree is a kingly tree. It's a royal tree. It represents royal office and royal glory. And Adam and Eve would have eventually been granted access to that tree had they just been faithful. Had they served God as priests, God would eventually said, okay, now it's time to promote you to kingship. Now you can have this tree. Now you're ready to judge good and evil as a king. But rather than waiting for God to bestow that royal glory on them and grant them access, Adam and Eve stole that tree. They stole the fruit from that tree. They stole kingly glory. James and John really are doing the same thing. They can't wait for kingly honors to be freely bestowed upon them. And so they demand that that kingly glory be given to them. 
They think Jesus is marching to Jerusalem to set up His kingdom. And they're right about that. But they don't understand the way His kingdom will come and the shape His kingdom will have. And so they think, hey, maybe we can get to the front of the line. We'll be first in line to ask for the best positions in the kingdom. And so we'll have the greatest glory of all. They probably think Jesus is very pleased with their request. But Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking for. Now, it's never a good thing when Jesus tells you you don't know what you're asking for. That's a sign that perhaps you ought to reconsider. Withdraw your request and maybe reformulate it differently somehow. But James and John don't back off. They ask to sit on Jesus' right hand and His left hand when He enters His glory. But they really don't know what they're asking for. Who will be on Jesus' right hand and on His left when He enters His glory? There will be two brigands. Two thieves who are crucified on either side of Jesus. There's one other place in Mark's Gospel where it makes reference to the right hand and the left of Jesus. And that is when He is hanging on a cross, when He is crucified. And there's one guy crucified on His right and another crucified on His left. James and John don't know it, but they're really asking to be crucified with Jesus. They don't realize it, but they're really asking to be nailed to those trees on either side of Jesus. They don't realize Jesus' throne will be a cross. That when they ask for glory, they're really asking for suffering. When they ask to be kings, they're really asking how they can serve. They don't get it. They really don't know what they're asking. But it's interesting what Jesus does here. Obviously, at this point, James and John don't get it. They will later on. Jesus asked the question, are you able to drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And again, ignorant of what this means, they say, we are able. And Jesus affirms them in this. He says, yes, you will indeed drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But then He adds, Jesus says, as to who gets to sit on my right hand and on my left, that's not mine to give. Rather, it is for those for whom it is prepared. In other words, what Jesus is saying here at the very end of that is He's saying, I am not going to claim royal prerogatives that are not mine. I'm not going to seize kingly glory that hasn't been given to me. Who is on my right hand and who is on my left hand? That's for my Father to decide. That's for my Father to prepare people for those places. It's not mine to give. I'm not going to seize prerogatives that aren't mine. So see, Jesus shows the proper kind of humility. But the really important thing here for us to notice, I think, are the references to the cup and the baptism. What do the cup and the baptism have to do with His cross? What do the cup and the baptism have to do with His kingly glory? Obviously, we would want to make sacramental connections here. The cup must have something to do with the Eucharistic cup. The baptism must have something to do with the baptism we've all received. But again, let's look at this in light of the Old Testament background first. We find a lot of cups in the Old Testament. Cups of blessing and cups of judgment. Cups of suffering and cups of salvation. We can't make all the connections here, but let me just point out some of these connections to you. I think one of the most important things to note here is the order. Jesus makes it clear. He will drink the cup first and then His disciples will drink afterwards. When Jesus talks about drinking a cup, He is obviously talking about His cup of suffering. He's talking about His death. He's talking about drinking the cup of God's wrath 
on behalf of His people. In Psalm 11, God makes the wicked drink a cup of fire and brimstone. In Isaiah 51, the wicked are made to drink the cup of God's wrath. It's a cup of wine, and it makes them drunk. It makes them stagger and fall. It's a cup of judgment. That's the cup Jesus will drink on the cross. That's why when He's in Gethsemane and He's praying before He's going to be betrayed and taken away to be crucified, He says, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from Me. He's not trying to evade His kingly responsibilities, but He knows what's coming. He knows great suffering and torment await Him. As a king, He must drink the cup for His people. He will drink the cup of judgment and He will drain that cup. He will drink the cup of cursing. That's Jesus' own cup. But then what does it mean for us? Jesus says His disciples will drink the cup too. Jesus drinks the cup first and He drains that cup, the cup of wrath. And so now when we drink the cup, yes, it is a cup of suffering, but no, it's not a cup of wrath. We have a cup to drink too, a cup of suffering, but it's a cup of suffering not to satisfy God's wrath. Jesus has already done that and our suffering could never do that. But it is a cup of suffering we drink that we might be conformed to His image. We have a cup of suffering to drink because in union with Christ, we are kings. And in union with Christ, we must suffer even as He has suffered. That's what kings in Scripture do. Kings suffer for their subjects. Kings reign by suffering. You could say kings reign and men suffer. Sometimes that appears to be the pattern the Bible gives us. But even more than that, it seems to be kings reign by suffering and through suffering. And that's why Jesus tells James and John they will indeed drink the cup. They will suffer. Now when they think of Jesus, when they hear Jesus talk about drinking a cup and that they'll have a cup to drink too, you know what they're probably thinking? They're so delusional and so out of touch with what Jesus is getting at. They're probably thinking, oh, Jesus is asking asking if we want to be cupbearers in His kingdom. And they're thinking, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good position to be the king's cupbearer. Oh, sure, we can drink the cup you drink. They think to themselves and they say to Jesus, cupbearer, after all, was a good position to have. You were part of the royal court. You were close to the king. Kind of a cushy job most of the time. As long as nobody was trying to poison the king's cup, it was a great position to have. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. They are thinking, oh, we can stand in the great tradition of Nehemiah as cupbearers to the king. But that's not at all what Jesus has in mind. He's not talking about a cushy job in the royal palace. He's talking about taking a cup of suffering, a cup of martyrdom. He says to them, can you drink that cup? They don't know it now, but yes, they will drink that cup. That cup of kingdom suffering. And through their suffering, they will be conformed to Christ's image. Christ will suffer first. His disciples will follow. That's always the pattern in Scripture. As the head, so the body. When an animal was sacrificed in the Old Testament, the head was first to be put into the altar fire and then the body followed. Moses wandered in the wilderness for 40 years on his own before he took Israel, the whole people, the body of the nation. And they wandered in the wilderness 
for 40 years. This is always the pattern. So what Jesus does, what Jesus goes through, His disciples will follow. They will go through as well. Their sufferings will be patterned after Jesus' sufferings. In fact, I think you see this very clearly in the book of Acts. You know, what's really behind Jesus' suffering? Well, it's the world and the flesh and the devil all hate Satan. The world um, hates Jesus. Satan hates Jesus and attacks Jesus. But here's the thing. You know, if, if we ask, you know, why did Jesus get crucified? Well, it's because the world hated Jesus. Satan hated Jesus. But now Jesus is ascended. Jesus is, is in heaven. Satan can no longer attack Him. The world can no longer attack Him. They can't attack Jesus, and so what do they do? They attack Jesus' bride. They attack His disciples. They can't get to Jesus, so they go after those who are closest to Jesus, the church. You might remember in, in Spider-Man, you know, Peter Parker has to tell uh, his girlfriend Mary Jane that they can't see each other anymore because Spider-Man has enemies. And when those enemies find out about his affection for Mary Jane, they'll attack Mary Jane to get to him. And so he says, we've got we to break this off. We can't see each other anymore. Okay. Well, no, wait, that's what it's like for the church, except <laughs> Jesus doesn't spare us. Jesus doesn't break things off with us so we won't get attacked. He doesn't protect us in that way. No, Jesus says, I want you to share in my suffering. I want you to drink this cup of suffering as well. The world continues to hate Jesus. Satan continues to hate Jesus. The world takes its hatred for Jesus out on us, out on the church. And that is why we too have a cup of suffering to drink. We suffer for Jesus' sake. We suffer for the kingdom's sake. We go through what Jesus went through. Our cup of suffering is a way of communing in His sufferings. I think you see this spelled out very clearly in the book of Acts. You know, Luke gives us his, his account of Jesus coming and suffering and dying and then rising and ascending. And then he gives us the book of Acts, which is the record of the early church. And what do you see happen in the lives of the apostles and the, the early disciples? The sufferings of Jesus are replicated in the lives of the disciples. And so take Stephen, for example. Stephen is the first martyr, the first disciple to drink the cup of martyrdom. The first disciple to drink the cup of death in union with Jesus. But what's interesting, if you look at Luke's account of Stephen's death, his martyrdom, there are all kinds of parallels with the account of Jesus' suffering. Stephen will drink the cup. He'll drink the same cup Jesus drank. So, for example, both Jesus and Stephen are accused falsely of speaking against the temple and the law. The charges are the same. They're both accused of blasphemy. Both are full of the Spirit. Uh, both tell stories and, and give arguments that confound their Jewish opponents. Both are murdered outside the city. And both, as they are being killed, pray for the forgiveness of their persecutors. As they die, they both have the same words on their lips. Stephen very clearly drank the cup Jesus drank. Stephen's suffering wasn't propitiatory. He didn't turn away wrath. Jesus has already done that. But it is a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul goes through the same kind of thing. He, he also drinks a cup of suffering similar to Jesus' cup. 
Paul, like Jesus, was rejected by his own Jewish brethren. Like Jesus, again, he was falsely accused. Like Jesus, he was tried by both Jewish and Roman courts. He's passed back and forth from court to court the same way Jesus is. Like Jesus, Paul is beaten and scourged and mocked. Paul drinks the cup of Jesus' suffering as well. And indeed, if we uh, look at the stories of James and John, we know that they came to suffer greatly for the sake of Jesus too. They also drank a cup of suffering like Jesus. So Jesus drinks the cup of suffering. And His disciples in union with Him drink the cup of suffering as well. Jesus drinks first. That ensures we will follow. In fact, actually, we, we play this out liturgically each Sunday, this pattern. This is why we do the Eucharist the way we do. When we do the Eucharist, you might have even wondered, why do I as the pastor drink first? And then the wine flows out and we drink and pass to one another. Why do we do it that way? Well, it's because I'm Jesus' representative. That's why I'm up here. That's why I was ordained. That's why I wear this white. Because I represent Jesus too. It doesn't mean I'm any closer to Jesus or any holier in my life. It just means I represent Jesus to you. And so just as Jesus drank first, I must drink first as well. I must be the first to volunteer to die for Jesus and His kingdom. See, when I drink first, that is a reminder that Christ went ahead of us and drank the cup for us. Then understand, when you take that cup and drink, There's a sense in which you are volunteering to share in Jesus' sufferings. You are volunteering to die for each other and for the sake of the kingdom when you take that cup. You are volunteering to bear each other's burdens, to drink a cup of suffering for the sake of the kingdom. That's what it means to take the cup. Now, it's a cup of blessing. As we take that cup, we share in Christ's benefits as well. But it's also a cup of of suffering. It's a way of volunteering to die for the kingdom and for one another. Jesus drank the cup of curse and wrath for us. That was His cup of suffering. Now we drink a cup of suffering that we might be conformed to His image. And because as we partake of that cup, we are communing in the sufferings of Christ, it also becomes to us a cup of blessing. Yes, it's a cup of suffering, but there's also blessing. Yes, it's, it's, it's a cup of suffering, but there's also salvation to be found in the cup. I think really the same kind of thing is going on with Jesus' baptism, His reference to baptism here. In fact, I think Mark has told the story in such a way that we're to see that there are three baptisms, a, a threefold baptism. Uh, in Mark's Gospel. There's his baptism with water in the Jordan River in chapter 1. There's a baptism of light at the Transfiguration in chapter 9. And there is a baptism of blood on the cross in chapter 15. He's going to be baptized with blood on the cross. His own blood will be sprinkled and smeared across his body. His baptism with blood on the cross will complete what he began with his baptism with water in the Jordan. He starts with a baptism of water, water poured over his body. He ends with a baptism of blood as his own blood is sprinkled and shed and runs over his body. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that when we are baptized, we are baptized into Christ's death. 
Jesus' baptism with water put him on the way to the cross. At the cross, he was baptized with blood as blood was sprinkled over his body from the nails and thorns and spears. But you know, your baptism puts you on the way of the cross too. Your baptism puts you on a way of suffering and sacrifice, a way of dying to self, a pathway of living for others, of serving others. We share in Christ's baptism. We commune in His sufferings. We're to be conformed to His pattern of life. Now, what does all this mean? What what do we do with this? We're going to come back next week and we're, we're going to see how this passage does have a lot to say about life in the church. And, and how the church should relate to the world and the wider culture. It's got a lot to teach us about that. But and we just ask the question, from what we've seen in this passage today, what does all of this mean? Jesus says He came not to be served, but to serve. And so, what should you do? You should let Jesus serve you. You should let Jesus Wash you. Remember when Jesus wanted to wash the disciples' feet and Peter objected? Let Jesus wash you. Let Jesus wash your feet. Let Jesus be your servant. Let Jesus serve you. Let Jesus be bloodied and beaten and crucified for you. Let Him give to you. Let Him give Himself to you. Let Him give you all His gifts. What do you do? Receive from Him. Receive His service. Receive the payment He made on your behalf. Receive the freedom He purchased for you. Receive the victory He won for you. Receive Him as your ransom. In a very real sense, Jesus does not want you to serve Him. In a very real sense, Jesus refuses your service. Jesus says, no, I don't want you serving me. I'm going to serve you. That's what Jesus says to us here. What's the the application of the sermon for today? Don't do anything. Let Jesus do for you. Don't go to serve Jesus. Let Him serve you. So many people get the Gospel wrong. We think Jesus came... To give us a second chance. No, Jesus didn't come to give us a second chance. Jesus came to be the second Adam. To undo the wreckage caused by the first Adam. To do what the first Adam should have done but failed. Jesus didn't come so you could turn over a new leaf. Jesus came to hang on a tree. To make restitution for the fruit that Adam and Eve stole. They stole the royal fruit. And so now the royal son has to go to the tree. He will now hang on the tree in place of that fruit that was taken. Jesus doesn't come to us and say, try harder. He comes to say to us, it is finished. Your debts are paid in full. Your debts are canceled. Your enemies have been defeated. He comes to be our ransom. He comes to be our servant. And because He's coming this way, it means you don't have to hide from God anymore. Hoping He won't find you. Hoping He won't find your sin. You don't have to cover up how messed up you are. 
God accepts you and loves you just the way you are. And God offers you His peace. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you adoption into His family. He offers you salvation. He offers you victory. All because Jesus went to the cross. Because Jesus laid His life down there as a ransom. Jesus is your ransom. His cross is your ransom. God is a God of love. And if you want to see God's love, you look at the cross. God's a God of wrath. God hates sin. God must punish sin. You want to see God's wrath? You look at the cross. And we say, well, how can this be? How can the same cross reveal the love of God and the hatred of God? Well, what the cross shows us is how God in His love for us has dealt with His own hatred for our sin. God has absorbed the punishment our sin deserves. And so we can be set free. You want to see the greatness of God? You want to see the kingship of God? Then look at Jesus. Look at Him serving you there on the cross. Hanging there on the cross for your sin. Look at God getting bloody for you. That's glory. He is the greatest of all because He is the servant of all. See, on the cross, Jesus turns inside out all our conceptions of greatness and glory and even Godhood. Just think about this for just a minute. You know, if you think about Allah and the way that the Muslim God Allah is, in a lot of ways, it's more logical than the way Jesus is. It's more of a straightforward understanding of glory. Just think about this for just a minute. You know, the controversy that broke out over the cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad over the last several years, you know, there were various newspapers and magazines that published these cartoons about Muhammad, and Muslims began to protest all across the Middle East, and it spread into Europe, and it finally culminated last January when the Charlie Hebdo, I think that's how you pronounce it, the magazine in France, had its offices uh, destroyed, shot up, and, and I think something like 11 people uh, were murdered. Uh, by these men who wanted to avenge Allah, Allah and serve uh, Allah's glory. You know, um, I don't think we ought to mock religions just for fun. Um, I also don't think we ought to shoot people who mock our religion. But I, I, this is, I want you to think about this. If your God needs you to firebomb someone who mocks your God, if your God is so afraid of appearing weak that He needs you to take that kind of vengeance on His behalf, I would say what you really have is a very insecure, self-absorbed God. It might look glorious. We're going to avenge our God in this way. It looks powerful. It looks strong. But really, it's weak. It's the opposite of what you have revealed in Jesus. That kind of godhood that requires that kind of vengeance, I would say that's really a weak and insecure God. And it's the opposite of the kind of God revealed in Jesus. The God revealed in Jesus is humble. He serves. He was willing to be mocked. He entered into the mockery. He was willing to allow Himself to be blasphemed and ridiculed and satired and even killed. Why? Why? All for the sake of His enemies. 
to ransom the very people who were attacking him. He doesn't say to his followers, now go bloody people who satire me and mock me. No, he says to his enemies, I'll get bloody for you. I'll be bloody in order to ransom you and rescue you. This is a God who comes not to be served, but to serve. He came to give His life as a ransom. To free us, to rescue us, to restore us. And that's glory. The glory of the bloody God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that You are not above humbly serving Your people. And we see this in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ who came among us as a servant, who is still among us today as a servant. A God who's not afraid of appearing weak and being humble. For in this weakness and in this humility and in this self-sacrificing, self-giving, sacrificial love, Your glory is revealed. So Father, may we revel in that glory. May we share in that glory by living lives conformed to the pattern of Christ. This is our prayer. Yeah.